Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Over the next 10 years, uh, 40 to 60 million people in this country will be admitted to intensive care units. Uh, And most of these hospitalizations will be sudden, unexpected, and in many cases, harrowing experiences that can alter patients and their families physically and emotionally. Um, Effects can endure for years. Uh, Millions, over the last few decades, millions of ICU survivors have left the hospital with disabling symptoms, including newly acquired dementia, uh, depression, PTSD, in some cases nerve damage. These are all now recognized as post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS, PICS. Many COVID survivors, in fact, also suffer from uh, post-intensive care syndrome. My guest, uh, Dr. Wes Ellie, has done groundbreaking and pioneering research uh, advancing our understanding of post-intensive care syndrome, and he's introduced crucial changes that have reshaped uh, intensive care, uh, minimizing sedation, uh, maximizing mobility, finding the person in the patient, attending to family, providing supportive aftercare. And he has now uh, really laid this out in a wonderfully written uh, narrative called Every Deep Drawn Breath, a critical care doctor on healing, recovery, and transforming medicine in the ICU. Dr. Weselli uh, is a subspecialist in pulmonary and critical care medicine and conducts research as professor of medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care at uh, Vanderbilt University Medical Center and also serves as a director of the Catholic Medical Association. And Dr. Elliot, it's good to have you back here. Thank you. I appreciate it, Al. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a privilege to talk to you, and I think we've got some great uh, new messages for your listeners that might end up helping them and their family. Yeah. Uh, intensive care uh, is, a, as you point out in the book, it usually comes upon us unexpected, unanticipated. Uh, it happened to me back in 2003 when I was hit with necrotizing fasciitis, uh, I went into the hospital on a Monday night, uh, Tuesday, they had to do surgery, and uh, I did not regain consciousness until I think it was probably Saturday. It was four or five days afterwards. Uh, we didn't plan for this. We, we didn't know what to expect. And uh, thankfully, you know, my life was saved, and uh, I emerged uh, from it, uh, you know, uh, without much uh, negative uh, consequences, a little loss of uh, feeling in my uh, remaining right foot. But people don't know. Should people prepare for ICU? I mean, are there things that we should be thinking about ahead of time? I think there really are. You know, I'm I'm sorry that you went through necrotizing fasciitis and in every deep drawn breath, which is a book, as you mentioned, of narrative nonfiction, every person that we talk about is a real person with a real story. Yep. And by the way, Al, all the proceeds are going back to patients and families because the goal here is to lift up and magnify the human dignity of all these patients. And I hope that the readers will be inspired by their bravery and by their lives. And there are two patients in there, Al, that you should know will, um, will, their stories are told from necrotizing fasciitis. One of them is Janet Keith, 
and she was my patient with necrotizing fasciitis, and she had ticks pretty bad, post-intensive care syndrome. Mm-hmm. But she's a very good friend. In fact, I was with her yesterday in really? the hospital for a different reason, but she's doing well. Good. And the other patient's name is Rob Harmer, and no spoiler alerts, but his story is incredibly moving in the book. And I do think that people need to prepare and be aware of what to do in the circumstance, in the unexpected circumstance of an intensive care unit stay. And it just so happens, Al, that yesterday I published a paper, a, uh, an article in the Daily Beast. So if you wanted to, for your listeners to put the link on there, they we can will. look up Wes Ely, da- the Daily Beast ICU or something like that, and you'll find the article. And, and the title of it is, What Do You Need to Know Before You Land in an ICU? And that's the entire purpose <laughs> of the article. Isn't that great? That's great. Very good. Well, I asked the right question to begin with. <laughs> so. You started off with a bang. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I, I am curious, too, about your your background. When you decided to go into medicine, did you uh, intend to be focusing in in this area of intensive care? You know, I grew up in the South, and my father left us when I was little, and I didn't, we didn't have any money. We lived in a little four-room house in Shreveport, Louisiana, and to make extra money, I worked in the fields, and I was a foreman for like 6,000 tomato plants and everything on a scale like that, and wow. I watched the pickers, and they taught me some important life lessons that they didn't really have a safety net, and when a, you know, a tooth would become a huge abscess or a cut would become a big cellulitis on their leg. And I realized at that point that I was inspired to serve people who didn't have enough of a voice and had no safety net. And I remember reading Maya Angelou's, I know why the cage birds sing. Yeah, sure. And she has a central, she has a central part in, in every deep drawn breath because later on she became my patient. But at the time I was really moved by her feeling silenced and these pickers feeling silenced. And all I knew, Al, was that I wanted to use whatever talents I had been given, whatever meager talents I had been given, to try and serve other people to reduce human suffering. And along the way, I realized that it was going to be through critical care. Yeah. Um, has, has the field changed uh, much since you began? Yes, I've been doing critical care for about 30 years, and... Uh, this, the arc of this is told very clearly by the patient's lives in every deep drawn breath. But, but the, at first it was all just about technology and just, you know, what machines can we bring? How can we save this person's life? And when we, when we got them off the machines, we, I thought that my job was done. Right. And I'm sure there were a lot of other great physicians. There were some great physicians. I, I was not one of them who didn't maybe do this, but I was trained that my job was done when they left the ICU. And, and I really carried a lot of shame and guilt through the years because I realized that I was hurting people with this technology. And, and I wasn't, I wasn't um, being honest with myself or with them and their families about the degree of injury that they were incurring because of being kept immobilized and sedated and, and, and tied down for so long. And I tell the story of Teresa Martin, my very first PICS patient, and how I realized and was convicted and had to make a change in my life as a doctor or else I thought, you know, I, I am not doing what God has asked me to do here. Yeah. I'm, I am not lifting these people up. I'm, I'm creating harm. Tell me the story. 
Well, Teresa was a young woman my, about my age, and she inadvertently, well, mistakenly, tried to commit suicide with an overdose. But the instant she took the drugs, she regretted it. And she got brought into my ICU, and she was upset and sad. And quickly, her lungs began to fail, and her kidneys began to fail, and she went into shock. Mm. And I put her on a breathing machine and life support and drugs to keep her blood pressure up. And we kept her up there for that entire month, and we, her lungs popped, and she had chest tubes, and all kinds of things occurred. And every day, her mother would sit at the bed and say, Dr. Ely, is she going to live? And I kept telling the mother, I don't think so. And I was wrong, and I was wrong to, to assume that I knew. And Teresa does live. She leaves the hospital. She leaves the ICU. This is the mid-1990s. And she comes back to me a couple of months later, and I'm expecting this grand entrance of her walking in. You know, Dr. Ely, you're amazing. You saved my life. I'm back at work. I've got my friends now. Thank goodness. And instead, Al, what happened was she wheeled in in a wheelchair with somebody pushing her, a blank stare, no, you know, her eyes glazed, not even knowing really who I was, even though I'd taken care of her for a month. Wow. And her mother, first thing she said was, why can't she move her, her arms and legs? Oh. And I had no idea. I, I, I'd never seen post-intensive care syndrome before. And I got x-rays because I didn't know what to do. And she had calcium deposits in her shoulders, elbows, and knees because of the amount of immobilization I had created in her life. Wow. She basically grown rocks in her joints. And that was just the joints. There was then the brain damage, the dementia, et cetera. Anyway, long story short, that was my first case of PICS, my first patient with PICS. And I, we didn't even know, we didn't even have that term back right, then. We didn't right. have that term for another 20 years. Mm -hmm. But what we now know is that this is a public health disaster for many patients and families, and it ruins their ability to be matriarchs and patriarchs. It takes away their livelihood and I don't want the readers and listeners to be too depressed because we have developed ways forward that serve people better. And, and unfortunately, in COVID, a lot of this got undone. But we do know, Al, now through large randomized trials, and I've devoted the past 25 years of my life working with the NIH and the VA and working with thousands and thousands of patients, really over 30 or 40,000 patients, to study them to pave a way forward towards hope and rebuilding their lives in a meaningful manner. I don't want to get uh, on a too far on a sidetrack here, but you mentioned COVID, and it's probably no way I can avoid asking you something about it, given how it dominates our public thinking on this. Um, are you? I I got a letter this morning from a friend of mine who's a surgeon in a large uh, midwestern town, uh, very respected, and he wrote a note to me because uh, we're friends, and he was frustrated about. Uh, the low rate of vaccination in the particular area in which he was working. Uh, I'd like to know from you, as somebody who is right there on the front lines and you're seeing people uh, in critical care all the time, and I, in fact you mentioned uh, the, the great uh, American country folk singer, songwriter, John Prine, who lost his life uh, last year. What is going on with the vaccination question? Why is there such uh, resistance to the vaccine? It, it's kind of baffling, but I'm going to try to make some sense out of it for you, and it is a great question. 
you know, the, the, vac- the bottom line is that the, the vaccine has been extremely robustly analyzed. The science is, is rock solid. We don't know everything, and I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend that we do. Right. But what we do know is that these different vaccines, including the RNA vaccines, are legitimate ways to prevent severe COVID and very likely prevent you from dying. I have had some people get COVID after the vaccine, right. but, not, uh, but not get that severely ill. And one ethical thing that people worry I'll, about, I'll tell you what, well, especially uh, in Christian circles. Uh, doctor, hold, hold it there a moment. I, music has come up. Got to take a quick break. We'll come back and pick it up right there, though. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Wes Ely. He is the author of Every Deep Drawn Breath. It's a critical care doctor's look at healing, recovery, and transforming medicine in the ICU. He's been a pioneering researcher in this field of um, uh, post-intensive care syndrome. And before the break, uh, we just uh, pause for a moment. to I asked the question, why such resistance among certain people anyways to uh, COVID vaccine? And uh, you were saying, uh, doctor, that the science uh, behind the vaccine is solid. Uh, Why don't you pick it up from there? I will. One thing that, especially in Christian circles, people worry about is these embryonic stem cells. They, they're so, the so-called HEC-293, right. H-E-K-293. Right. These cells are 50 years old. I'll make two comments about them. One is that these cells, being 50 years old, are very, very uh, indirect and remote uh, in terms of the involvement of the use in, in this vaccine. In fact, we're only used for the RNA vaccines anyway in in testing the safety. So I think there's no ethical problem with those, with this, those mm-hmm. stem cells in this circumstance. And the other thing is that many of the people who are anti-vaccine because they're worried about, about the science are going towards ivermectin. Well, ivermectin, two problems. One, it also was tested with HEC-293. So if you're worried about the embryonic fetal stem cells, that's got the same situation, but I don't think that's an ethical concern. The main problem with the ivermectin is that there is no science behind it. Anything that was positive has been disproven and debunked. So I want to listen to my patients. I want to hear what their fears are. I want to meet them where they are. And one of the problems, and it's very sad, I had a woman come to me in the ICU with COVID, dying of respiratory failure, and she said to me, doctor, do you know why I didn't get the vaccine? And I asked her, no, tell me. And she said, well, because the man on the TV said that they were trying to depopulate society of people like me. And I just knelt down with her, held her hand, stayed with her, and tried to show her her value and how she's invaluable and priceless and that I was going to take care of her and never leave her and not abandon her. She actually was abandoned by misinformation. Yeah. And she was a yeah. victim. Yeah. And there are lots of people, even critical care doctors, who are spreading misinformation about this, and it's a shame. Mm-hmm. So I'll just leave it at that. Sure. Um, but the consensus on this is clear? I think the consensus on the vaccines is absolutely clear. People will say, well, what about three years from now? Well, again, the chances of anything overt happening three years from now with having had the vaccine are extremely low and not even in the same breath as the chances of getting Delta right. if you're unvaccinated. It's right. so contagious and so dangerous that the benefit so grossly outweighs the risk 
that to me it's it's a no-brainer to get the vaccine and as soon as you're eligible for a booster to go get the booster unless your doctor tells you some specific reason sure. why you specifically shouldn't go get it. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, you have a wonderful phrase here, finding the person in the patient. In fact, you've got a whole chapter under that title. Uh, tell me what you mean by that. You already referred to it in some significant way, but I'd like to unpack it even further. Sure, absolutely. Well, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I had a patient who was uh, came in with big, bad belly pain, Went to the OR. They opened her up. They found herself riddled with cancer. She comes back upstairs, and I had an option to either snow her with narcotics or ask her the question. And too often, I would have knee-jerk asked her, knee-jerk not asked her, and just given her tons of morphine, knocked her out, and um, and then waited for her body to you know to die not trying to kill her deliberately, but trying right. to put her in an unconscious state. Yep. In this case, and this is in the book, I, I, I said to her, what do you want? And she very clearly said, give me just enough so that I'm not writhing in pain and I have something important I want to do with my family. And so this woman was an atheist. She was very, very clear about her devout atheism, if you will. Sure. And she then asked each person in her life to come in the room, and she said to them, do you love me? Wow. And then they would reply, yes, you know, I love you. And I thought that was the end. Then she said, do you really love me? And I, I watched this happen. She, they said, yes, you know, I love you. And then she would ask each person a third time, but do you love me? And they would say, you know, I love you. And I was so blown away by that experience. This atheist asking that question three times, wow. do you love me? Yeah, very moving, and and then hugged them, and then came to me and said, Dr. Ely, you're in my inner circle now. Do you love me? And we went through the same thing, got that hug, and it was just such a moving experience. Finding the person in the patient, seeing this person, eye contact, every person is of infinite value, and we can never even begin to understand the complicated beauty of each person. And the old way out of critical care which I write about in the 90s and early 2000s, was kind of putting people through a depersonalization chamber. And what I have done is gotten rid of that depersonalization chamber in my life where I want to have them with their vivid color, their likes, their dislikes, their, their disgruntlement. They can spit on me, whatever is needed <laughs> in the time. But all of them is what I want to take care of, kneel down at their bedside, meet them where they are. And to do that, I need to have a really intense patient-physician covenant, and I will not break that covenant. And that's really the essence of what every deep-drawn breath is about, mm -hmm. is, is traveling that with the patients, right. with the science, and bringing the two things together. I wonder if that atheist patient of yours uh, understood that that sequence could have been taken right out of the Gospel of John. Um, where Jesus... <laughs> I, I, I know, and, that, and I looked, and there was the other doctor in the room with me... <laughs> Was we were looking at each other, just going, "What is going on?" <laughs> it was so crazy. Yeah. And uh, but I, I never asked her that question, so I'll never know. But it was so reproducible and beautiful, and I will never, ever, ever forget it. But that's the beauty of of the of the unique experience we get to have with other people, and and the gift and the privilege I have of being with people at these times in their lives. Do people? 
I mean, people want to know, does faith in Christ make any difference in the way they approach death? What do you see? First of all, I ask people what their spiritual values are. I want to know what my patient's spiritual values are so that I can respect whatever their path is, whether it be Buddhist or Islam, uh, you know, Hindu, Judaism, whatever. And, and, and then I do try and just, just enter that, enter into that with them and learn from them. And, and it's a, it's a privilege And my atheist and agnostic patients. Similarly, I, I tell a story in every deep drawn breath about Dr. Giancarlo Piano. And it's a beautiful story. And all these people's names are in the index. So people can find these names in the index, but he was Catholic, and I had been praying for a long time that somehow in the book I'd be able to share, you know, it's not a religious book, but I just wanted to be able to share my own personal beliefs, and, and you know, Providence would have it. So John Carlo had COVID. He was a cardiothoracic surgeon, and it was bad, and it was getting worse. And I went to Mass that morning before going to see him that day and, and, and took a pix and brought him the host, and this story is in Every Deep Drawn Breath. Um, and it's an incredibly moving story. And I, you know, his wife gave me permission to tell it, but I think that it absolutely made a huge difference, his belief. Mm -hmm. And I love to be present for anyone's devout belief in a higher power, however they see him. Um, I myself am am an Al-Anon attendee. I go to Al-Anon because a lot of people have had addiction in my family, and, you know, in the 12 steps, we talk about a belief in the higher power. Right. What I've come to realize is it's just so beautiful to, to learn from other people how they, how they envision their higher power. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, a, I'm also fascinated by it, uh, exactly how people experience God. And, uh, you know, and, and that's a different, that's a different uh, realm of inquiry than uh, uh, strict theology or doctrine, although I'm fairly theologically, I'm quite conservative, but I am interested in religious experience, and so I'm I like to hear how people, regardless of their ultimate faith assumptions, how they actually cope yes. with situations. Um, is it difficult? I mean, you sound like you're really in tune with with people, but you also sound like you're just by your achievements, a, a very competent researcher. Uh, a lot of people think those two things don't necessarily go well together, that the the, the pastoral, personal uh, work of a doctor uh, doesn't necessarily uh, translate into the kind of rigorous, uh, hardcore, numbers-crunching research that has to be done. How do you, how do you handle them both? You know... I think they go together really, really well, seamlessly in my own life. Mm-hmm. And I believe in the Ignatian motto, his uh, principle of foundation, uh, which is that we are here to praise, reverence, and serve God. And and everything that I'm doing, I'm praising, reverencing, and serving uh, God the Father and the Holy Spirit and, 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 and Christ. And so science is something they came up with, the beauty of all these complicated <laughs> chemical pathways, right. and the way the body works and everything. So I can't honor their genius any more than to try and determine truth through scientific inquiry. Yeah. 
And that's what I do with my life as a physician scientist. And I sign my letters, AMDG, Odd My Arm Day Glorium. Everything I'm doing is to try and humbly approach the magnificence of creation and, and unfold it in a way that we can apply medical concepts better to reduce human suffering. Yeah, very good. Uh, we've got about two and a half minutes here. Uh, you have mentioned something in the book that had never crossed my mind before, and that is this question of delirium and, and intensive care. Um, I don't know why, never, but that becomes a problem, huh? People actually become delirium, delirium is when the brain globally can't, process information anymore so the person becomes clouded in their consciousness or in, unable to pay attention and that's kind of been a foundation of my research for 25 years yeah. our website is icudelirium.org so if the, if the listener wants to go there icudelirium.org and on that website there's lots of information for families and lay people and medical people there's nothing to sell you there um, but but what what really is going on is that when the brain goes down like that that person cannot communicate themselves to others, and so we lose the person and the patient. Yeah. So my job is to try and help bring that patient back out of delirium, and we do that through getting rid of bad drugs, through taking care of the underlying medical problems, and then also, and this is the beautiful part, through the touch, through the human condition, the connection with family, through kneeling and holding hands and talking to them, and then that's that beautiful the, the, the humanism in medicine yep. that can bring them back out of that delirium. And that's, again, that nexus of the spiritual path. You know, this is an entire person, mind, body, and spirit, not just a set of lungs or a heart to fix. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it is amazing to me the importance of touch here. Um, God-like skin, I guess. Uh, he <laughs> yes, very much. <laughs> he took on human flesh, so and he created skin. But it does. A touch uh, can be, mean so much. Uh, I, again, my experience indicated that years ago. Well, let me thank you so much uh, for being with me. I, this is just a remarkable book. I hope we can get together again to discuss further what's in here after I have time to you know, read it all the way through. But it, uh, I'd love it. It would be, be a privilege for me, and I'd love that. All right, Dr. Ely, thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye now. Dr. Wes Ely, this is a beautifully written book. It's kind of what, you know books I get all the time. This is one of those you want to chew on and enjoy through. Every deep-drawn breath 